Chapter 2, Part 1, from the sermon series, Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Peter, on. So this year, my wife and I will be celebrating our 24th year wedding anniversary. Yes, 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 it's been a long, long time since we got married. It was back in 1999, on September 18th. And uh, our wedding day was like the most perfect day. It was beautiful, it was a beautiful sunny day. A lot of my closest friends and fam I had some family in Korea, never thought they would even come out, but they came out from Korea uh, to attend the wedding. Uh, my wife's side of the family, it's huge, and so we just all came together with several hundred people. Some of you in this room actually attended my wedding. My brother-in-law, Wesley, who moderated, he was one of the MCs, and, uh, and he did such a great job. But it was really a special occasion. It really is. And weddings in our culture today is really is a special time where we can come together and celebrate two people that we love because they're committing themselves for the rest of their lives. That's, our, that's the hope that we hope will happen in a wedding. And so weddings are a big deal, but in the first century, it was a whole different level. And we're going to try to unpack that a little bit today. Today, as we continue in this series, we're going to look at John chapter 2, the first 12 verses, and Jesus goes to a wedding in Cana. And this wedding is actually quite pregnant with a lot of theological meaning. And we're, trying, we're going to unpack that. And then what I want to do is I want to sort of ask the question, what does Jesus turning water into wine teach us about God? What does Jesus turning water into wine really teach us about God? We're going to try to get to that, all right? So I'm going to welcome up Ethan. He's one of the kids in our fourth and fifth grade minutes. Just welcome Ethan up here. And Ethan is going to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And so if you have your Bibles, please make sure you turn there with me. Can I hold the mic for you? All right, let's do it. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that is not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, Fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. The host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Thank you, Ethan. Let's give Ethan a round of applause. Yeah. It's the word of God. Could you guys bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer? Lord, this was a miracle you didn't necessarily want to do, but you did do it. And there was reasons why you did. So would you help us to just unpack this text for our lives? Because we know that the word of God is truly um, the word. It's God-breathed. And Lord, we need a word today from you. So just speak to us. Speak to our souls, God. And uh, God, open our eyes to see what life is really about. And I pray that we'll be able to see that it's not so myopic. It's not so just focused on our own little world. 
but God, that you call us to go out and really focus on your kingdom rather than just the fiefdom that we created for ourselves, God. So Lord, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray that it would indeed be pleasing unto you, and it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Let's kind of go into this if we, if we can, just sort of verse by verse. Let's look at the first three verses, all right? It says, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in the Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told them, they have no more wine. Now, in the Palestinian cultures, weddings were important events that the entire village actually knew about, all right? Uh, when a first century Jewish person thought about heaven, when they thought about the Messiah, they often associated it as a wedding banquet, all right? You see that sort of when you look at the Old Testament, they often associate it. Psalms 23, right? You prepare a table before me for my enemies. It's a banqueting table before me. It's this wedding celebration that they have. And in the first century, I know for our weddings, they're what, three to five hours at most, right, when we have weddings here in, in our culture. But in the first century for a Jewish wedding, it would last up until a week, can you imagine partying for a week? I mean, that's a long, long time. The Jewish people truly knew how to party back in those days. Wedding celebrations weren't just a small period of time. It could even last as, as long as a week. And the worst thing that could possibly happen at a wedding ceremony during this time actually happened. And what happened? They ran out of wine, right? They actually ran out of wine on the first day. This was not something that was a small problem. This was a crisis in epic proportions because back in those days, it wasn't just because now the party can't go on because you ran out of wine. There actually was some legal ramifications when you didn't follow the proper customs that society has embraced. So this was a huge problem. This would cause the family a deep amount of shame. Jesus' mother, Mary, knew that, and that's why she went over to him and she said, hey, Jesus, they have no more wine. And look at how Jesus responds to her. Look at what it says in verse 4. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Kids, try to respond to your mom in that way one day. When she asks you to do something, if she says, hey, clean your room, just say to her, say, dear woman, that's not my problem. My time has not yet come. All right? See what happens to you. I guarantee you, you will get grounded. All right, so I'm not encouraging it, kids. You will get grounded. If I, if I said that to my mom growing up, I would get probably smacked. I would get spanked for sure. My mother would not tolerate that. And it's easy to conclude that when you read verse 4, that Jesus was actually disrespecting his mother, but he wasn't. In fact, when you look at the Greek, woman was actually a term of respect. But here's what Jesus was trying to do. Jesus was trying to allow his mother to know that from this point on, he's no longer going to submit to the authority of his mom. That from this point on, he's creating space. And he wanted Mary, his mother, to know that he is now under the jurisdiction, under the authority of doing the Father's will. That's why he responded in this tone and the way he did. That God had called him to do something. Jesus came into this earth. He had a purpose in life. And he was going to fulfill it, a purpose and a mission that was far bigger than Mary could have ever dreamed and ever imagined. And that's why Jesus responded in this way. Right? But somewhere along the line, I guess as Jesus sort of talked to his mother, he decides to do it. And that's what it says in verse 5. It says, his mother says, do whatever he tells you. And I don't know what Mary knew, but you know how moms just know what their kids are going to do even before they do it? It might have been that. It could have been. But maybe God could have said, go for it, do it. And then what happens in verses 6 through 10 is incredibly, it's incredibly significant. Look at, look at uh, verse 6. 
Standing nearby was six stone water jars used for the Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. The servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. The six stone jars weren't just any jars. They weren't just for holding water. They were actually used for the Jewish purification washing, all right? Stone jars were used by the Jewish people because they would never contaminate the water. Clay jars over time would contaminate the water. And so when Jesus, when these jars were empty, says, fill it up with water, Jesus was making a real powerful statement. Why did Jesus decide to do this miracle? Did he want to keep the party going? Yeah, I think so. I think Jesus wanted to keep the party going. He knew that, you know, the party lasts for days, but it was something more important than that. What he wanted to do, and the reason why he picked these stone jars, was because he wanted the people to know that from now on, there's a new way towards people achieving purification. That it's not going to come through a Jewish ritual anymore, but it's going to come through him. That you and I can never do something in our lives so that we can attain purification before God, right? It's not a badge of honor. It's not a sign of spirituality or spiritual maturity when you and I receive the purification from God. Jesus, no human being can achieve purification outside of Jesus Christ, amen? And so why did Jesus turn this water into wine? Did he want to keep the party going? A little bit, for sure. But the reason why he does it is because he wanted to make a thundering statement that from now on, if you want to be purified, it's got to come through me. And that's why the MC, when he drinks the wine, he says, you saved the best to last. Why? Because the MC was suggesting that the Jewish faith is deficient. And Jesus has now come to make the Jewish faith or to make the faith in God to truly be, to be efficient in every, every way. And so then it ends by verse 11. It says, the miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. A sign is a supernatural event that often reveals something hidden about God. That's what a sign is. And John really is concerned about these signs. There are seven great signs in the Gospel of John. We're going to go through all seven of them. This is the very first sign in which Jesus Christ does. This sign doesn't just teach us something about God, but what it does is that it shows us that God is truly with Jesus Christ. That his hand is upon him, that Jesus Christ is the bona fide Messiah, that he is the son of God. That's what the sign points to. And that's why at the end, the, the apostle writes, Jesus reveals his glory. When Jesus does a sign, when he does a miraculous sign, it reveals the very glory of God. All right? So when you look at this passage, what can you and I learn from Jesus turning water into wine about God? What do we learn about God through this miracle of Jesus turning water into wine? The first thing we learn is this. God cares about the big and small things in your life. God cares about the big and small things in your life. It's easy to think that Jesus is only concerned about the big things. It's easy to think that Jesus is only concerned about saving souls, right? Getting them to heaven. That Jesus just cares about renewing people's souls. But it's so much more than that. Jesus cares just about the big things in your life but he really does care about the small things in your life too. Why? Because he loves all of you. 
He doesn't just love the big things about you. He loves the small little things. He wants to be involved in the small little things in your life. So don't ever get to a place where you say, you know what? I shouldn't even pray about this. I shouldn't pray about this little dilemma that I might be going through because it seems so inconsequential. No, don't do that. Involve God into it. I've learned over the years that it's the small things that I involve people in my life with that really forges intimacy. It's not just the big things in life, but it's the small things that often forges intimacy. The wedding in Cana teaches us that God truly does care about the big things, yes, but he really does care about the small things, the things that sometimes seem a little bit inconsequential to us. He cares about all of it. When I think about my relationship with my three kids, uh, Christina, Kayla, and Christian, um, there was a picture that I took of them a few weeks ago. They were home, and they were just hanging out on their bed like this. And the reason why I went upstairs to take this picture was because Jenny and I were downstairs, and they were just laughing and joking around and having a great time. And I just thought that's pretty cool because two of them are in college, the other one's in 11th grade, and I thought they really still like hanging around each other. And so I just went up and I took this picture. I like to believe that I have an intimate relationship with all three of them. And part of the reason why that's the case is because I've attended all the big things in their life. I've attended their graduations, right? I've attended um, their big-time sporting events. I've attended uh, uh, vacations sometimes. We've gone to vacations together. Those are big things, right? Uh, I hope to one day attend their wedding. I won't miss that for the world. And one day I do hope to be there in the hospital when I welcome my grandkids. <laughs> Guys, I don't know, man. As I'm getting older, like, I cannot wait to be a grandfather. Like when I look at little kids now, I'm thinking this could be like my grandkid, right? And so I don't know, it's like something is shifting within me. It's kind of weird, but I'm actually looking forward to going to the hospital and holding my grandchild in my arms. Like I cannot wait. I will be there. You cannot take me away from those moments. I will be there with them in those big moments in their life. But really what allows us to be intimate with each other is the small things that we're a part of. It's the opportunities where I get to go and drive them to school or pick them up from college. It's the moments when I can take Christian to a baseball practice and we're in the car together and we're just opening up and just sharing our thoughts with each other. Where I ask them sometimes some questions where I just don't want them just to like share things that are just on the surface, but I'm trying to get deeper. It's when we have our family dinners together when they're all home and sometimes I ask just simple questions like, can we just share what brings us the greatest amount of fear? And then I'm just blown away because sometimes like my kids share in tears. And I'm just like, whoa, like, I wasn't expecting that. But it's those little moments. It's those moments when we have family worship time when I will, uh, my, my daughter will lead worship, a couple songs, and then I will spend, I'll share something. And they force me. They say, you cannot preach long, Dad. It's got to be five minutes or less. All right? We'll listen to you, but it's got to be five minutes or less. I said, all right, all right, five minutes or less. So when we have those family nights when we get to watch a movie together. And uh, it's when we get to uh, be a part of our lives in small ways and just checking it out. Kayla's in Boston right now, and Jenny's just checking in. How's everything going? And it's these little things that we get to be there for them in. And, you know, last week I was speaking in Jacksonville, Florida, at a very large pastoral conference for our denomination. And I was one of the keynote speakers. And so, like, hours before, Jenny and my kids, they would just text me and say, Dad, you got this. We're praying for you. You'll be good. Don't worry about it. I'm just like, thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. And it was broadcasted live, and so they were watching it online, and afterwards, like, you know, my, my phone started going off, and I checked it out after the service, and they just said, Dad, you killed it. 
and they put the fire emojis up. And I'm just saying, man, you know, it's these little small things that really forges intimacy. And so why do I share that with you? Do you really want to get intimate with God? Do you really long to get intimate with him? Invite him to be a part of the small things in your life. The little small dilemmas, the little small concerns that you might have, that you might be struggling with. What this wedding teaches us is that God, he loves all of you. That means he loves the big stuff, but he also loves the small things in your life that sometimes seems a little bit insignificant, but to him it is significant. Involve him in it. Kids, are you struggling to do well in school, like getting good grades? Why don't you invite Jesus to be a part of it and pray that he would help you with your test? Now listen, when you pray that God will help you in your test, you got to make sure you study. All right, so don't be like, well, I'm just going to pray that God helps me, and I'm not going to even study, and he should help me. No, 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 no. Do your part, and let God do the rest. Like, study, like, pray before you even study. Just ask God to help you, right? Are you struggling to find friends in school? I struggled to find friends in school in elementary school. I really struggled to kind of fit in. Are you struggling with that? Do you want to belong a little bit in school and find some friends? Why don't you invite Jesus to be a part of that? And pray and say, would you, God, would you help me to find a good friend that I can learn to depend upon? We can really uh, develop a real deep friendship. Invite him in that. Is, are you struggling with that in work? Maybe finding some friends at work. Why don't you pray about it? Are you struggling in work? And you feel like you've been struggling at work every day for the past, what, 15, 20 years? And you think, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I should pray for this anymore. Pray for it. Because God doesn't necessarily have to give you another job or vocation to completely transform the way you see your job. It's just about him transforming your perspective and who he is. That's all that's really, that really matters and that's required. And maybe as you pray and seek God in that way, that he'll begin to do that for you in your life. It's the small things that often develops our intimacy and our relationship with God. And what I love about what happens at the end, this MC says, you've saved the best till now. When you seek God and involve him in the small things, oftentimes you'll see the best is yet to come. God wants to be a part of those little things in your life that sometimes you feel like are a little bit inconsequential for him. No, God cares about it. So that's the first thing we learn. The last thing we learn about Jesus turning water into wine is God's sacrificial love. What we learn from this story is that God truly loves you with a sacrificial love, all right? What does that mean? What's clear in this passage is that Jesus didn't want to do this. He didn't want this to be the first miracle that he does. Right, in his ministry. He didn't want to turn the water into wine. But yet he does do that. He gives up his own preference. Why? Why does God sometimes gives up his own preference? This is why I think prayer is really important. Because sometimes we read in the Bible that God will change his preference. Why? Because he really loves you. And that's why. Like how many times have we done that as parents? Like our kids say, God, mom, dad, I want to do this. And we know it's not like the most ideal thing. But because they really want to, we say, okay, go for it. God does the same thing. We see that. Remember with Israel when they wanted a human king? And they said, God, we want a human king. What was God's preference? He said, no, I'm your king. Why do you need a human king? They said, well, we want a human king. Come on. And so God said, okay. He changes his preference and he gives him Saul. Right? King Saul, the very first king in Israel. God is willing to change his preferences sometimes because he truly loves us. 
Jesus is so, the, 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 most, the greatest example of God's sacrificial love is shown on the cross. But if you go a little bit before that, it's shown in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus didn't want to die for you and me. It was hard. He realized that the level of sacrifice that this was going to cause. Like how difficult this was going to be. And so because it was, he was at this garden called Gethsemane. And he was just praying to God and saying, God, would you please, let's take this bitter cup away from me. Please, let's do this. And what did God say? He said, no, you can't, Jesus. You can't. I love my people. And this is the only way where I can begin to have a real intimate relationship with them. This is the only way where they can be purified so that we can have an intimate relationship with them. So you're going to have to do this, Jesus, and Jesus does. Right? And so what we learn from the story of Jesus turning water into wine is that Jesus' love shows that God's love is sacrificial for you and I. God has sacrificed everything to demonstrate that he loves you. Amen? We know this. How about us? How about us? Our sacrifice is often a litmus test to determine whether we love somebody or not. If you don't love someone, I guarantee you, you will not sacrifice for them. You just won't. Why would you sacrifice for people you don't love, right? I wouldn't do that. Nobody in this room would do that. We're only willing to sacrifice for the people that we truly love. And that's why you'll see a mom or a dad, they will actually lose sleep when a baby is sick, when their baby is sick. You think they want to do it? You think they look forward to doing it? Of course not. No parent wants to lose sleep. No parents want to see their kid sick, right? In fact, most parents will say this, God, give me the sickness so that my kid can get better. Most parents say that, don't they? Right? And so that's the reality because love is deeply entwined in our capacity or our desire to want to sacrifice for the person that we love. And so if that's true, if you realize, and we've come to the conclusion, that Jesus Christ has loved us so much that he came and died for us on the cross and he resurrected from the dead so that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. If we believe in that, that God has sacrificed everything for us, then when was the last time you had to sacrifice for God? When was the last time you longed to do that? Because you loved him so much that you were willing to sacrifice your life, your desires, the things that you may want, where you were willing to sacrifice even your comforts for the sake of God. Where do you stand in that area? Have you ever desired to sacrifice for God? Or do you just keep expecting God to sacrifice for you? Because I'm telling you right now, the brand of Christianity that's, that's being created in this country and that's created even here in Bergen County is desire that we just want to live in comfort and we want God to bless in whatever world in which you and I decide to live, but we don't want God to lead us in places where it becomes uncomfortable where God is leading you and I to sacrifice. And I ask you this, is that if that's the case, and if that's how you see God, and you see him more as somebody who's supposed to bless you and, and supposed to help you to get to heaven when you die, you see him as an insurance, pro, uh, like a, pro, a project or something like that, a process or policy, you're never going to know God's love. Because love cannot be fully experienced unless it's willing to be sacrificed for the person that you love. God wants you to sacrifice today. What we learn is that God sacrificed everything for us, and he did that because he loves us. So then what about us? When was the last time you said, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice for you? When was the last time you said, I'll do it, God, only because I'm so enchanted with your love for me? That's it. That's the only reason why you want to sacrifice, because you're so enchanted with the love that God has for you. You're not sacrificing so that he can give you some stuff. You're not sacrificing so he can answer certain prayer requests. You're sacrificing because you're so deeply impacted and transformed by the weight and the furious love of God upon your life. When was the last time you were willing to do a sacrifice because you felt the power of God's love in that way? 
One of the reasons why I think so many of us, we struggle, we often question if God's really there. We feel like there's an emptiness or, or that our life with God is so dry. Honestly, if I'm just going to speak it to you today, it's because you're not willing to sacrifice for him. You're like those big stone jars. You're just empty. And when you're not willing to sacrifice for God, then your relationship with Jesus becomes a very empty one, a hollow relationship. It's not real in many ways. And when you begin to start sacrificing, say, I will begin to sacrifice for you, then what begins to happen is those jars, those empty jars will be filled with wine. You'll experience a purification like you've never experienced before because you're being in this intimate relationship with him. You see, for you to really receive the love of God, it's not about you just receiving it, but it's about your willingness to release it and give it away to others. That's how you and I encounter it. And God would ask you today, are you willing to do that for him? And so what does that look like? What are some sacrifices? Let me give you some examples maybe that might help you to kind of think. Through. Let me start off with some small examples of sacrificing, okay? The first one could be fasting. God may encourage you to fast for some seasons in your life. And in life, you should be, if you haven't fasted in a while, you should be thinking about how you can put that into your spiritual practice. Lent is coming on February 22nd. Think about maybe something you can fast so that you can focus on Jesus. Why do we fast from food? We fast so that there can be a spiritual breakthrough in our lives. That's why you fast. You don't fast so that God can answer a prayer request. You fast so that you can be deeply enchanted with the love of God. That's why we do it. So think about maybe fasting. That's a small thing, right? Another small thing is maybe lose 30 minutes of your sleep every day. Get up a little bit earlier. Pray. Read the word of God to connect with him. That could be a beautiful thing you do before you have to get ready and go to work or go to school, whatever it might be. Getting up a little bit earlier, right? Another way to sacrifice is watching less TV. So maybe you watch too much TV. Maybe less social media, right? Uh, young kids, you guys are, you know the 70% of Gen Zs? Do you know how many hours they're on social media and YouTube a day? Four to six hours a day. 70% of them are. Maybe giving up some of that time and trying to focus on God and embracing some spiritual rhythms and practices that can help you to grow in your relationship with him. Maybe that's a way in how you sacrifice. Those are small sacrifices, I think, right? Small sacrifices that we can do. Maybe another small sacrifice you can start doing is start tithing. Tithing is 10% of your income to the church. That you can start doing that and you stop just giving whatever's comfortable to you. Because giving has to be sacrificial, if you want to experience joy. If it's comfortable, you're never going to experience joy from it. Maybe you can say, you know what, I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start trusting that God owns everything. And he says in the Bible, you should give 10% at least to him. It's the starting point. Hopefully, you guys, as you get more, you can give more. That's a small way in how you can sacrifice to God. Maybe sacrificing for God means you becoming fully committed to this church rather than stop dating us. I mean, if you want to keep dating us, that's fine. But you know, over time, we're not a very good date. We're <laughs> really not as a church. Maybe it's time you take steps of becoming a partner, a member of this church. And say, you know, I'm going to stop dating this church and I'm going to fully be involved. I'm going to take the steps. I'm going to go to Connections Dinner. I'm going to go to a partnership class. I'm going to fill out the, sh the partnership application and I'm going to become a partner of this church. And I'm going to try to give all of myself to it. That's a small sacrifice. Those are just all small sacrifices. Can I get to the big ones? You ready for this? I know you're not. <laughs> Some of you need to break up with your boyfriend and girlfriend because they don't believe in Jesus. And you know if you keep going down this path, 
they're going to lead you further away from him. But you won't do it because of security that they give to you. You need to break up with them. That's a big sacrifice, right? Some of you married couples, you need to finally stand up to your parents because your parents are ruining your relationship with your spouse. Your spouse didn't marry your parents. They married you. And you got to take a stand. And you got to just say, stop. I'm no longer. I'm going to create a boundary so that you stop invading and hurting my marriage. Now, I know that's hard. And I know as we get older, sometimes we think it's easier. It's not. It doesn't get easier as you get older. It even gets harder because no matter how old I get sometimes, my mom still thinks I'm a little kid. Right? She still tells me these things that are so elementary. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a grown man. Right? Like, how dare you tell me these things? Like, I'm an adult. I'm almost 50 years old. Maybe it's time you take a stand. I was with a pastor yesterday, and it just boggles my mind. He was telling me how much his parents are destroying his marriage with his wife. And I said to him, I said, dude, what are you doing? I was trying to be pastoral. But I was like, come on, man. Your wife didn't marry your parents. She married you. It's not a package deal. You got to take a stand. Some of you are going to have to take a stand. I don't care if you lose your name on their will. You got to take a stand. And you got to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. That's a big sacrifice, a real big sacrifice. Some of you need to finally get together with someone, another Christian, and you need to do a life confession. Because there are still sins that you have committed that haunt you to this day. And maybe you don't think it does, but one of the things that you live in all the time is guilt. And guilt is not from Jesus. Guilt is from the throes of hell. And you feel that because you have not really received the mercy of God in your life. That's a big sacrifice. That's not a little one. Another one, you, want, you ready for this one? How about just get together with a few people who know you and give them permission to speak truth into your life so that you can grow in greater self-awareness. Now, if you're insecure, which the majority of us are in this room, that's not easy to do. But it's so vital that we do that, otherwise we're never going to grow fully because we're not going to really know who we are. People that are a part of your life, been a part of your life long enough, they actually know some things about you. And you know what they know? They know areas where you need to grow. They know it a lot. If you would ask them, they might be able to share that very important information so that you can grow in greater self-awareness. That's pretty big, all right? Here's another one, another big sacrifice. Some of you really hate your jobs. You're pursuing a vocation that God has never called you to do. But you're doing it because it pays the bills. And allows you to live at an economic sort of status that allows you to live in Bergen County and you feel good about that. But you're dying, man. You're dying at work. And there are passions in your heart that maybe you've even forgotten about because you've been doing this for so long. And maybe what you can do is thinking about living a much simpler lifestyle and quit and pursue a different vocation where your heart is fulfilled because it's congruent to what God wants you to do. That's a big sacrifice. Want one more? This one's for everyone. Nobody gets out of this one. This one is a big one. Every single one of you has been called by God to dedicate your entire lives to serve and love the poor and the oppressed. To get to a place where we'll be proximate with them. That we wouldn't just write a check and send it in in the mail or send it online, but that you would get proximate, that you'll get close. Because when you stare humility in the eye, you'll think Jesus is staring right back at you. God wants to transform you and show you the depth of his love as you stand next to those whom the world has often given up on. 
That's a huge way. And maybe God will call you to change how you do your work rather than making profits for yourself. You will begin to dedicate and live a much simpler life and do a vocation where you can serve the least, the last, and the lost. That's a big sacrifice, but God calls all of us in this room to do it in some capacity. For some of you, you might be privileged enough to dedicate your entire lives to it. And if you do, God bless you. And I hope you don't just see it as a sacrifice, but you see it as a noble endeavor that will lead to a lot of peace, joy, hope, and love. Because you and I are never more alive when we do this with our lives. Over 2,000 verses in the Bible where God talks about how you and I have to serve the least, the last, and the lost. Folks, this is a purpose that God has called every single one of us to. This is the kingdom in which God has called us to build. A kingdom where we don't look at the poor and the oppressed and we see them as second, third, fourth class citizens, but we see them as children of God. God wants to use you and me to restore the Imago day in which society has taken away from these people. And we have to be willing to do that and go all the way for it no matter what it takes. Are you willing to sacrifice for that? That's a big sacrifice. That might have to cost you something. But God calls every single one of us to do it. Jesus turning this water into wine, he's doing this first sign. He didn't want to do it, but he sacrificed his own prefaces to doing it because he loved the people. He loved his mother and he was willing to do it. God's love for us is deeply sacrificial and he's asking you today, will you sacrifice for me? Will you sacrifice for me? One of my greatest heroes in the faith today is a man by the name of Brian Stevenson. He was actually one of the other plenary speakers at the conference that I went to last week. And uh, I'm telling you, man, uh, everyone was crying in the room. It was so powerful. Brian wrote a book many years ago. It's a New York Times bestseller. If you've never read it, uh, I encourage you to buy it because that book, I don't get fully moved by books. Like, I read books, but, like, there, there's some books are just good. But I very rarely get deeply moved by a book. This book will break you in every way. Just Mercy is called. The book was so good that Warner Brothers did a movie about it a few years ago called Just Mercy. And guess who played it? Michael B. Jordan played Brian Stevenson. What a great person to play you in your life. I mean, that would be pretty awesome if Michael B. Jordan played me. But, he, but it's a great movie. Great movie. I highly encourage you to watch it. But Brian's story is powerful. Brian was a grad student at Harvard Law School. He didn't know how he was going to pursue law. He had no idea how he was going to really do it. And then he did an internship in Atlanta, Georgia, where it was a human rights organization that, that represented people on death row. And so, like, because he was an intern, he actually went to these jails, to these prisons, and he got proximate with these people that were on death row. And because he got proximate with them, God broke his heart. He met with Jesus. And God said, Brian, you're going to dedicate the rest of your life to do this. You're not going to go and work at some big law firm in New York City and make a whole lot of money. You're going to live in poverty. And he actually did. Because I have some pastor friends that I know that actually supported his ministry about 20, 25 years ago. Because Brian couldn't even pay for food and groceries because nobody would support him. And you're going to do this for the rest of your life. He went back to Harvard and he studied everything about the criminal justice system, graduated, became a lawyer, and he started EJI, Equal Justice Initiative. And his entire organization is about representing men and women that's on death row. And that's what he does. And he shares these litany of these stories of people in which he had come in contact with in his entire career. And this one story I'll never forget. He shared this, and he said that this was a man that called him one day, and he only had 30 days left to live. His, his execution was scheduled 30 days away. And so he calls him, and he says, hey, Brian, um, would you mind representing me? 
Brian knew there was nothing he could really do because he, he was, his execution was 30 days away. But of course he said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll represent you. So he took his case, he looked at his files, and he realized that the man had an intellectual disability. And the courts prohibit executing anyone with intellectual disabilities. So Brian saw that that was a way, a way out to hopefully he can save him from being executed. And so he goes to the appeals court, he gets denied. He goes to the federal courts, he gets denied. An hour before his execution, he's waiting for the Supreme Court to call him to see if he could remove the, the, the death sentence upon this man. And the Supreme Court calls him and says, we're sorry. We can't reverse the call. Denied. Brian had to do one of the hardest things he's ever had to do. He called this man up in prison and he said, I'm so sorry. It's been denied. This man just started crying, and he started wailing. And um, he also had, he's also stuttered a lot. And when people who stutter, when they're very anxious, they really can't get their words out. So he just said, just don't hang up. And Brian said, I'm not going anywhere. And he just waited patiently until he got his emotions together. And then finally the man said to him, he said, Mrs. Stevenson, I want to thank you for fighting for me. I appreciate you in every way that you went to court for me. And then he said this. He said, Mrs. Stevenson, I want you to know that I love you for trying to save my life. And then he hung up, and they executed him within the hour. And when Brian hung up the phone, he just said to God, he was praying, because God, I can't do this anymore. It's too painful. I just can't do this anymore, God. And while he was in that desperate state, and he was thinking about quitting what God had called him to do, God said this to him. He said, Brian... Do you think I called you to do this, to represent people on death row because you're this big lawyer from Harvard? Is that why you think I called you to do this? He said, Brian, do you think I called you to do this because nobody else will do it? You're the only person in this country that's going to be willing to do this? He said, no. God kept saying, Brian, do you think I called you to do this so that you can pursue equality and justice for the condemned? He said, no. That's not why I called you. He said, Brian, the reason why I called you is because I want you to know that the people that you're representing is a reflection of your own brokenness in your life. You are just as broken as them. That's why I've called you to do this. And from that point on, Brian said it was one of those coming to Jesus moments for him. And he said, God, no matter how hard this gets in my life, no matter how much you continue to call me to sacrifice, I will do this for the rest of my life. And God has used them to overthrow sentences of several dozen people, young juveniles as well that were condemned to death, as well as older people, several dozen people over the years of him doing this. He says this. He says the opposite of poverty is not wealth in our country. The opposite of poverty is justice. It's justice. And he was willing to sacrifice, and he continues to sacrifice whatever it's, he's called to do. And the reason why he does it, and, he, and this is the best part, he, he, he picked the verse, my mantra verse, 2 Corinthians 12, and he said, God said, Brian, it's only in your weakness can my strength be perfected in you. Amen. I want you to know how weak and broken you are. You're not going to know that unless you stare and you get proximate to the poor and the oppressed. Amen. Some of you, have no idea what God's strength in your life is going to look like because you're not willing to get proximate with the least, the last, and the lost. You're not willing to sacrifice. If you really want to know God's love and you want to live under the power of his love, 
It's about you getting to a place where you don't ask God to just keep sacrificing for you, but you're saying, God, how can I begin to sacrifice for you and advance your kingdom? God is calling every single one of us as we celebrate the very first Sunday of Black History Month. He's calling every single one of us. Will you be about justice, advocacy, and compassion? Will you sacrifice for God? I wish, I really wish God didn't have to use you and me to be a representation of his love. I really wish he could do it without us. I really do. But he chooses not to because he truly believes when two or more are gathered in his name, I will be there. So God uses you. God uses me to sacrifice our lives so that we can get proximate to the least, the last, and the lost. Are you willing to do it? My hope is that you do. And may your empty stone jars be filled with wine. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Amen. I'm going to give you just a moment just to process this with God. Listen, um, very few Christians actually know what God has called them to do with their lives. Very few. If God has shown you what he wants you to do with your life, and yet you haven't taken that step, it's okay. You don't have to feel guilty about it. But I want to encourage you that today is the day you got to accept it. Because you're not living life right now by running away from a calling that he actually revealed to you. If you've been that privileged, you need to receive it. And you need to sacrifice and say, yes, I'll finally do it. Whatever that looks like. So can you just go to him? Maybe the reason why you're so empty today, you feel so empty when it comes to your relationship with God and your love for him or, or you're not, you don't really feel that he loves you, is because you've never really sacrificed for him. And you just keep wanting him to sacrifice for you. So can you change your posture today and say, God, I'm going to involve you in the big and the small things in my life, but I'm also going to start sacrificing for you because you've sacrificed everything for me. I'll give you a moment to do that and then I'll pray for us. God, I pray that we would never just play church. I pray that Metro Community Church would never be a country club. But that we would be an outpost of building your kingdom on this earth. And it's not going to happen unless the people in this church are actually willing to get proximate with hurting people in this world. We're not going to really do it unless we actually do care about those who feel like there's no hope in this world anymore. There's so many people out there that are hurting and they're struggling right now. They have no idea that God even loves them. And they certainly don't believe that they've been created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And some strange, weird reason, God, you choose to use us to show them your love and to be a demonstration of your love and your grace and your mercy. So God, would you help us would you help us to get proximate? Would you help us to serve and expand your kingdom to the least, the last, and the lost? 
because we can't do it without you. But help us to first see that we are the least, the last, and the lost before we go out and serve those who are hurting today. God, um, I pray for the little ones here. Let them know this at a young age. Because the worst thing is if they go on and just grow up in the culture of Christianity, they're never going to know this faith in you is real. The only way they'll know is if they're willing to get proximate and if they're willing to give up their lives for you. So I pray for the little ones. I pray for these high school kids and middle school kids that they, they would know the height and depth and width of your love, that they would encounter the wrath of your grace for their lives and the mercy and they would know how furious it is for them. So God, that they would live their lives to want to sacrifice for you and help them to find their lives that way because that's the only way our stone jars will get filled with wine. So God, help us. We thank you so much, God, for this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.